This is a podcast by The Straits Times and Money FM 89.3. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Speaking of Asia podcast by The Straits Times. This is Ravi Velour, and I'm an associate editor and Asia columnist for the paper. This series of podcasts focuses on Asian issues and distills experience from four decades of covering the Asian continent. In this episode, which is being recorded on the 7th of December, I have with me one of Asia's foremost foreign policy experts, Professor C. Raja Mohan, who is the director of the Institute of South Asian Studies in Singapore. And the subject of our conversation is India. Particularly, I intend to begin my conversation with Professor Raj Mohan around a paper that was recently published by New Delhi's Center for Policy Research called India's Path to Power, Strategy in a World Adrift. This paper argues that the foundational source of India's influence in the world rests on four pillars. These are domestic economic growth, social inclusion, political democracy, and a broadly liberal constitutional order. There's no better person to discuss this than Dr. Raj Mohan, because in my view, very few people have the depth and the breadth that he brings to this subject. Indeed, his is a 360-degree view of India and the world. In some ways, this also is a farewell interview for Dr. Raj Mohan, because he's leaving Singapore soon and returning to India. However, I'm told he will continue to be associated with ISAS, so that's a big comfort to all those in Singapore who admire his work, and that line starts with me. Raja, welcome to the Speaking of Asia podcast. Thank you, Ravi. Delighted to be here with you. Raja, Singapore has always wanted India to do well. We were the cheerleaders for ASEAN's engagement with India. We were instrumental in getting ASEAN to invite India to the East Asia Summit, and to helping it get full dialogue, partnership, and so forth. And all of this was based on the perception of India's promise and engagement with ASEAN. Many would say that India sometimes plays below its potential. Some would say it consistently disappoints. My own personal view is not so pessimistic. I'd say, for instance, that parts of the Indian story has not been fully told to the outside world. Nevertheless, perceptions matter. Raja, could you tell me what are the recent highlights of the Indian story and where do you think the country could have done better? The sentiment uh, you talked about in Singapore, which has been a consistent supporter of India, uh, India's inclusion in Asian institutions and the well-wisher of India, uh, I think there is a deep recognition of that in Delhi and in the Indian political class and in the Indian uh, establishment uh, more, more broadly. Uh, when India was reconnecting with uh, with Asia. I mean, Singapore was really at the forefront drawing India in. No, I'm quite uh, familiar with uh, the fact that many of the expectations uh, that uh, the Singapore or others in the region had have not been met. But it's also a fact that uh, India has made significant progress going back to the early 90s to, to today. Uh, India is today a $3 trillion economy. Uh, it is already the sixth largest economy in the world. It'll soon be the third largest, uh, well behind U.S. and China, but nevertheless the third uh, in the next uh, few years, uh, overtaking uh, France, Britain, Germany, and Japan uh, eventually. I'm quite familiar with the fact that there's a lot of disappointment about India's uh, progress and its performance, and the sense that India punches well below its weight. Uh, many Indians, too, uh, feel that. 
But looking at it objectively, I mean, if you look at the last three decades, um, the Indian trajectory has been impressive. Uh, overall, it has never performed as well as it has in the last uh, three decades. Uh, today, it is already the sixth largest economy. And in a matter of time, I mean, the next few years, it will be the third largest, well behind the US and, uh, and China, but it will be there as the third largest economy. Uh, so my sense is, uh, whatever the perceptions of India's performance relative to the expectations is, but the net weight of India is continuing to rise in the regional system, in the international system. Therefore, I think there'll be quite a bit uh, in the years ahead uh, about uh, what we can engage with each other, that is India and Singapore, India and ASEAN. So the mere fact of India's size and its existence uh, is going to create a very significant set of interests uh, and the prospects for engagement uh, between uh, Singapore and Delhi. Raja, one cannot miss that the economy had been slowing even before COVID. What are the factors holding India back from achieving its promise and its potential? The slowing down started uh, quite in the in the later half uh, of the UPA rule, uh, particularly in its second term, uh, which was there from 2009 to 14. Uh, many of the steps that were taken uh, seemed to slow down the economy. Uh, Mr. Modi came with the idea of boosting the economy, but some of the reforms he did, uh, for example, the GST uh, created, uh, you know, it should have done in any circumstance, further slowed it down. And this demonetization, which many economists thought was a was a misguided move, uh, further uh, created uh, complications. And then just when it seemed to take off, uh, we had the pandemic last two years. But now it looks like, as of today, uh, that Indian economy is poised to come back as one of the fastest-growing economies in the world. If all goes well, uh, the financial year 22, which ends in March, uh, India should be growing, grown at 9%. And that rate of growth around 8%, my sense is uh, that's coming back, presuming the pandemic does not uh, create more damage uh, to, to India's prospects. But the track, I think India is back. My sense, India's growth story is back. Uh, and uh, I think there's reason to be optimistic about India's economic performance in the coming years. Thank you for that, uh, Raja. When you say UPA, you mean the Manmohan Singh government of, uh, uh, that ruled India between 2004 and 2014, before Mr. Modi came in. What sectors of the Indian economy do you think we in Southeast Asia and Singapore should be watching? And where do you think we could profitably engage with India? You see, India is, I think, is, is doing something, but I don't know if that will really work for the ASEAN, which is really drawing capital into foreign capital and domestic capital into manufacturing industry. But I think this is not uh, ASEAN's cup of tea. There, there might be complementarities because now India's the so-called production-linked incentive scheme is really trying to restore a lot of the manufacturing capacity. But I think it's in the services sector, in the technology sector, where I think there is a lot of room uh, for, uh, you know, Singapore's participation and to some extent the others uh, in, in ASEAN as well. Uh, uh, so my sense is I would say watch out for the tech technology sector. Uh, India, there is the tech sector is booming uh, on the digital side. While there are issues in terms of digital trade as on the normal trade, uh, but I think the opportunities to invest in India's uh, digital transformation uh, and technological change uh, would be would be quite significant uh, in my view. What about renewable energy? I believe that India is doing a fairly decent job in that sector. 
exactly. I think uh, Prime Minister Modi uh, at the COP26 made some big promises uh, to get to 500 gigawatts of renewable energy, uh, investing in a big way in the EV sector, as well as in the uh, various other, including hydrogen. So my sense is the, it's going to be opening up very, very rapidly. So here, uh, my sense is there would be a lot of opportunities. Other is the food security sector as well that India needs to reform and change. And I think some of the experiments being done in Singapore, uh, including in the production of uh, impossible meat uh, and growing food in the labs, uh, a lot of that I think would be would be a great value for India uh, because India needs to you know up and reform its uh, food production so that uh, it will be less uh, damaging to the environment and less damaging to, uh, to land and water resources uh, in India. Thank you for that, Raja. How much do the pulls and pressures of being a democracy hold India back? We notice here that uh, Prime Minister Modi recently had to withdraw three farm laws that many had thought were urgently needed to reform India's agriculture sector because of the, uh, and he reacted to the uh, protests from the farmers. Is democracy holding India back? The big argument, uh, look, uh, democracy holds India back. But uh, what choice does India have? So if India cannot dispense with democracy, uh, to do growth, I think so. That the conflict uh, it was often posed in the in the early you know seventies and the eighties. Uh, democracy and development were two two different you know mutually contradictory kind of phases. And I think we've transcended that phase. The fact is, that democracy is embedded in India's political structure. Given its diversity, there is no other way of governing India. So my sense is there will be uh, setbacks. Uh, there will be uh, demands to persuade people to accept change. And I think in the farm sector, what we saw was really, it's very, very difficult to overcome interests that have become entrenched and are so used to subsidy structure uh, that to change that root and branch will be very difficult. So I think some people say the reforms were great, they were much needed, but probably it could have been done differently. But that's all hindsight. My sense is that it looked like for a short while that Modi's power was so much he can simply push through the reforms. But but I think, as we've seen, there's always pushback. Uh, even if you might have all the seats in the parliament, uh, the people uh, will speak up. And, and, and I think adjustments will have to be made, uh, probably new approaches, more on the state level rather than the central government doing. So my sense is it's a, it's a once again a reminder that uh, that doing the right thing is not always easy uh, in uh, in India, given the range of interests involved. Do you think the withdrawal of the farm laws could uh, impact other decisions, such as the privatization of Air India and others that are uh, slated to come soon? Almost through, I think, in a few weeks, Air India should be fully, uh, you know, in the hands of the Tatas uh, who will be running it. But I think already I see the unions are organizing themselves on a whole range of issues. So they will, they, the farmers' success would give a lot of life to the to many of these groups uh, to to push and resist what's going on so i would say look out for the life insurance corporations uh, ipo which is going to be one of the biggest uh, some of those privatizations i think looks like at this point will go through um, so but but still but there has to be we must expect some resistance but my sense is the big change in india today compared to the 70s while there will be residual resistance and we see that in all democratic societies what has changed is the, the government is welcoming both 
domestic investment, that is private capital in India, and the foreign capital are to lift up the uh, the the Indian India's productive forces. My sense is that, shall we say that that force will carry through quite a bit of the reforms, while others have to be, uh, you know, accommodated, adjusted, uh, delayed. Uh, that 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 I think will continue. But so far, we can see some of the big privatizations still are on track. Raja, thank you for that response. I'd like to talk a bit about uh, Indian society. It looked as though after 70 years of being a free nation, Indians had begun to gel as truly one people. The uh, introduction of the GST has uh, made it one big economy. But some of the Hindu nationalist themes emerging in India are worrying, uh, if not distressing for people who live in multi-religious, multi-ethnic nations uh, outside of India. And the Center for Policy Research paper does mention this as well. Could you help us understand why the Modi government seems to be going down this path? There is the big debate within India, which is what the CPR report captures. And much of the Western media have talked about it. Is India becoming an illiberal democracy? Is India reversing course from its uh, traditional emphasis on uh, pluralism, uh, tolerance, and, and democracy? Uh, my sense is the pronouncements on the death of Indian democracy or demise of Indian democracy are, uh, uh, you know, premature, if not entirely off the mark. Uh, that this idea that you know, in a short period of seven years, uh, Mr. Modi and the BJP have uh, established comprehensive hegemony over the Indian society. Uh, you know, which is what the belief which leads to this. But my sense is, if you look at carefully at what's happened in India in the last seven years, Mr. Modi and the BJP have had a hard time winning elections, state elections. So it is not as if all the power is concentrated in uh, in the hands of uh, the Prime Minister, while he has a strong majority in the parliament. He has had a hard time uh, winning elections in Bengal, State Assembly, which is Tamil Nadu, Kerala, uh, they've been marginalized. I've never had much force in Punjab. Uh, so in many parts of the country, they're really, you know, there is other forces. So this notion somehow, because Modi gets so much attention, simply that one party with barely 33% of the vote uh, is, is ready to already exercising the Hindu hegemony of the society, I think would be, would be a mistake. And, and I think it's underestimates, I believe, the essential feature of India which is really its diversity, language, culture, religion, uh, you know, caste, you uh, can't forget that, uh, and regions, uh, the variations across regions. This idea that all this is going to be subsumed under the Hindutva banner, uh, I think it's completely mistaken. I mean, uh, we've seen that. Uh, it's it's not been easy for uh, the Hindutva forces to, to reign everywhere in the country. Yes, there have been uh, abuses of state power. There are a whole lot of issues. And, and that is being debated within the country. Uh, probably some of the institutions which are hesitant to step in are beginning to step in. So my own view is India's diversity is not just an abstraction. It is actually, it translates into politics. It translates into political mobilization. Therefore, different communities get mobilized. For a brief period, we've seen that uh, Prime Minister Modi and the BJP, in the name of Hindu nationalism, could construct a large coalition at the national level. But they've not had similar success at the state level. And my sense is that diversity will assert itself uh, and that eventually uh, India can't be governed from one extreme 
Now, it has to be governed uh, from the center. And one where you build coalitions across religion, across caste, uh, across uh, language, uh, it's only by building such cross-cutting coalitions can you really govern India. My sense is that fundamental uh, truth about India, or the fundamental, you know, the, the way the center of gravity of India is, uh, I think will reassert itself. So I would say uh, we must have patience and the coming state elections uh, in February, March could be a good indicator of that. Look, India has seen so many rulers come and go. Uh, I think India endures. So this idea India has finished in just a uh, few years, I think it's really alarmist uh, and, and doesn't take into account the natural inertia, the natural uh, weight of India's internal diversity. Thank you. That's comforting to know. But does it worry you that India might be weakening internally at a time when the situation on its western and eastern borders is not very good? Look, I think if you see India's you know, matrix of India's weaknesses and strengths, I would say, look, the economic growth is on trajectories. So in that sense, you know, India's overall economic strength uh, is, is growing. Uh, and this relative weight in the international system is growing. Uh, as you rightly said, internal unity, internal coherence is absolutely critical now for any society to succeed. But my sense is, yes, there are questions on that, which is what the CPR report actually talks about, that, that India's internal religious polarization is harming its regional effect, uh, regional uh, influence. Uh, that's, that's certainly partly true because in the subcontinent, thanks to the partition, the religious question is an important one. While Pakistan, we've always had problems. The improvement in relations with Bangladesh uh, often runs into the uh, religious mobilization within India. So those tensions we've seen. But we've also seen the dramatic change, positive change in India's relationship with the Gulf. Uh, India's relationship with Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates have never been as good uh, as they are today. Uh, it's a great partnership that's building. So my sense is that while there will be relative weight of different factors goes up and down, but I would say that the pressure to adapt to, you know, not to let domestic divisions weaken you would grow. But the challenge with China, of course, is very different. I mean, that in the subcontinent, uh, the religious question since partition will soon be in the 75th year of independence and partition. Those issues have never been settled. I mean, so, so I think it's not just... One, one regime being bad, but those were deeply structural fault lines in India. And the statesmanship is about overcoming those fault lines, uh, you know, healing those wounds of partition, which are still, uh, you know, as open as they were uh, many years ago. So that's, that's, that's one part. And I think there is no answer to it. But the challenges India has from China, you know, which is really a gigantic power that has risen in the North. Uh, which is now today's economy is five times bigger than India's. Uh, it's a rapid military modernization. Uh, those have become much greater challenges. But then we've seen dealing with that, you've seen India is getting closer to the United States. Uh, it's building coalitions with other powers. So I think we are into an interesting phase that India's relative weakness vis-a-vis -vis China, how that gets bridged would be a big story in Asia for the coming years. Thank you, Raja, for talking about West Asia. Can I bring you back to our region, which is East Asia, and uh, the Look East policy that uh, India announced back in 91, I think 1991, if I'm not mistaken. It's been three decades. Could you detail for us its recent highlights? 
particularly in these last uh, three or four years when you were directly tracking it from Singapore? The Lukis policy had basically three dimensions, I would think. I mean, one is the economic reform and catching up with uh, with the East Asia, East Asian growth story in the in the early 90s. The second was the, the institutional integration with the East Asian structures. And the third was the implicit, but it was never articulated, the question of India's security role uh, in in East Asia. Uh, and the, in the, so these were the three broad elements. Now, in all three, there are significant changes uh, in the policy. Uh, on the economic side, uh, I'm sure we would want to talk more about it, that India's approach to globalization has changed, and India is not the only one. How India looks at free trade with Asia, especially China's dominance over uh, manufacturing sectors, uh, that I think India has moved from simply joining ASEAN to one of actually withdrawing, uh, which is what the decision on the ASEP was, that India would not uh, uh, you know, simply uh, be under the Chinese economic uh, sphere. So that is a big change, and that India is trying to do what China has done before. The argument being large countries cannot dispense with their manufacturing or they need to rebuild their manufacturing capacities. And therefore, some form of rebuilding India's internal manufacturing capacities has become a priority. Uh, therefore, you see there is, which has created a lot of uh, un unhappiness in ASEAN, but I think that's a political decision, that's a strategic decision. And India is not alone, but India's trade is continuing to grow. So I think we need to come to a, a fresh look at what is the nature of the trade relations. Second, on the institutional side, I mean, you know, ASEAN, especially Singapore, was very welcoming. India became part of the, all the ASEAN structures, including the East Asia Summit and then the ASEAN Defence Ministers Meeting Plus, etc. But today, India is a member of the Quad, uh, which today India is now beginning to be creating, participating in institutions which are no longer just ASEAN-led, but outside ASEAN. So this is a new situation. Here again, uh, my sense is uh, uh, the Quad is not going to disappear. There are going to be new institutions. Uh, India is not part of the AUKUS, but certainly part of the Quad. So what we're seeing, the structural change in East Asia uh, is going to see uh, new minilateral institutions that will coexist with the ASEAN-led multilateralism. Uh, that's going to be reality. So there again, we have to take a fresh look. And the third on the security role, uh, that India largely thought, look, you know, engage militarily, don't really get into too deeply into security cooperation. As you're familiar, under the UPA, there was a deep resistance to serious military diplomacy with the region. Uh, my sense is that is changing now. Uh, the Quad itself uh, is not a military alliance, but India's expansive military engagement uh, with the US, with Japan, with Australia, uh, with other partners in the region is going to be important. So uh, you can't duck the question that China's rise uh, has created conditions under which India now uh, sees itself uh, the need to play much larger security role. So all the three, economic, institutional, and security, uh, there is a significant change in the original terms of engagement. But I think there's not enough appreciation of that. And I think we need to sit down and really work out new terms of engagement on all the three issues. This podcast is available on our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Like us and rate us. And now, back to our podcast episode. Thank you, Raj. I'm going to come back to China in a bit, but I want to ask you a question about RCEP, which is the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, from which uh, 
India pulled out in November two years ago. It came as a huge disappointment, particularly for Singapore. How can India remedy it? And more importantly, does it want to remedy that? The sense of disappointment was clear because India was in the negotiations for so long. But I think uh, ASEAN needs to appreciate that India cannot be without manufacturing capacity. It can't simply say, look, like the Chinese produce this, you know, cheap goods and India would simply be a market. Uh, we've seen large parts of India's manufacturing industries wiped out. I mean, that's, uh, so therefore, that decision that India must restore some domestic capacity, now there is no going back from the decision, at least in the near term. So I think this is a new reality I think ASEAN has to deal with. And it's not just India. I mean, I think this, this mantra of globalization that you can have simply uh, this kind of an efficient distribution of production in which China has dramatically gained ground, that argument is no longer bought in the, the original temple of globalization, which was the United States. Uh, so we're beginning to see some adjustments to the, the globalization doctrine of the 1990s and 2000s to one where some uh, you know, adjustments to it, whether it's a WTO in terms of the institutional structure, whether it is to the trading regime, I think some sense of change is, is taking place. Uh, India, fortunately, has not just turned its back on trade. It has begun something interesting. Uh, and you and others, I'm sure, in Singapore will follow this, uh, of a shift to strategic trade agreements. Try and negotiate fast-track trade agreements. Uh, it is now negotiations with the UK and uh, uh, Australia at an advanced stage. Uh, there's speculation that India's uh, free trade negotiations with Israel and UAE and the GCC might might take off. Uh, and then India just started a dialogue with the European Union. Uh, so there is that shift that India might now see you can't completely stay out of all trade agreements, but do with selective partners who are natural uh, complementary economic capabilities. So I think there is a there is a new situation that's emerging. It's Singapore would be very interested uh, to, to follow that. I'll come to Singapore in a bit, but I just want to ask you one more question about East Asia. If you look around India's relations with Australia, with Japan, South Korea, all moved very strongly. But yet, ties with China, with which it shares a critical and long boundary, have been terrible. What went wrong there? And are these ties beyond repair? Because I heard a former foreign secretary say that they've been set back 50 years after the fighting in the Ladakh region of the Himalayas last year. I mean, um, because things are pretty bad at this point of time. Uh, because you saw India, uh, you know, just as in the 60s, I mean, believing, as in the 50s, actually, right, and India became independent, that India and China can be friends, that the Asian giants can work together. Uh, that got shattered in the 60s. But India, once again in the 1990s, believed that, look, China can be a partner, India and China can work together for a multipolar world, uh, and that they can improve their bilateral relations while keeping the boundary dispute, uh, you know, off the, you know, frozen. I mean, try and negotiate it, but don't let it come in the way of the rest of the normalization. But I think India made a huge mistake, in my belief. It's retrospect. It's uh, easy to say this, which is India fundamentally underestimated China's own ambitions, what it wants to be. Like if you talk to the Chinese, say there is no problem. They say it's our territory. We're simply taking it back. But the understanding was that there would be no violent change of borders. 
But China thinks, look, this belongs to it, the Ladakh frontier. They're going to do what they've done in South China Sea. So I think the failure, there was a failure on India, was to be too naive about China's ambitions and aspirations. And today I think India has woken up. And and I think uh, for the Chinese, uh, restoring trust would be very, very hard in the days ahead unless they quickly restore the status quo. But, but it doesn't look like, and there's nothing to hint that the Chinese believe they have any reason to make nice to India. They say, look, this is their territory. They're simply taking what is theirs. Like they say in South China Sea, historically, uh, everything belonged to them. So I think it is really, ball is really in Chinese court. And as long as the Chinese keep pushing India, uh, they have no choice but to find ways of balancing China, uh, strengthening its military capabilities, and working closely with other uh, partners who have similar interests. Raja, thank you. Can I bring you to our home country right here in Singapore? Singapore was a cheerleader for ASEAN's engagement with uh, India. How is the relationship today? The post-RCEP, post-Quad, I mean, I think we are in a new situation. Quite clearly, I think uh, there were certain assumptions that were made, which we talked about between India and India's Lokis policy. But I think the time has come for India and Singapore to sit down and say, look, we are at a new stage. Uh, in globally, regionally, and bilaterally. So we've had a great run for three decades. It was simply coasting on a momentum uh, on shared assumptions. Uh, but today, I think we are in a new situation in terms of India's economic strategy. Uh, what are the complementarities that exist with Singapore? Uh, we are in a, uh, the new institutional structure where India is in the quad. India is uh, closer to the U.S. Sometimes I hear the Singaporean friends talk like non-aligned India. Uh, 40 years ago, and uh, there it was Singapore, which is to tell India, look, why are you so obsessed with the U.S.? Why are you so anti-U.S.? Uh, so I think that in some sense, it, I won't call it a reversal, but I think the situation has changed. So in the regional situation, we need a better understanding of each other. Uh, how do we stabilize this region? Because the shared interests have not disappeared, but the context has fundamentally changed. And finally, on the question of security, uh, what is it that we do? Uh, how do we, because it's on the defense side, it's been a very, very good relationship for 30 years. I mean, there's been a growing partnership, uh, growing trilateral, plurilateral engagement in the Malacca Straits. So now I think if the regional context has changed, the security situation has changed, what is it that we must do uh, to strengthen this relationship and contribute to regional regional security? And uh, broader than simply Southeast Asia, I mean, the whole question of Asia, the Indian Ocean, where Singapore's reach, although it is a small state, it has a huge reach. So I think there are things, for example, Singapore is a member of the Small States Forum. It's it's in the Indian Ocean uh, Regional uh, Association. So there are areas where we must take a fresh look and say, look, how do we work together uh, to to produce a new regional order uh, in which both of us have a very, very strong state? Raja, I noticed that uh, a lot of the weapons on the Sino-Indian border are of uh, American make. And it's well known that uh, India now has nuclear weapons. Its rocketry is very powerful. And it has an expanding fleet of nuclear submarines. But one missing aspect is cyber. If you hear the words outside, what's uh, said in the newspapers and everything else, India is talked of in terms of being an IT superpower. But 
its strengths as a cyber power are rarely mentioned. Is this deliberate on the part of India or are we missing something here? I think uh, Delhi missed a you know, few tricks on this. I mean, it's been slow to see the cyber power issues. While India was an IT superpower, there was not much coordination between Delhi and Bangalore. That, that we really, you know, that it was still securities run as a closed government shop, while India was creating massive capabilities in the in the private sector uh, in India. So ho- hopefully, in the coming years, as the pressures mount in India, uh, India is now engaged in a far deeper cyber dialogue with a large number of its Western partners. Uh, my sense is some of that will be corrected as India begins to, uh, you know, mobilize its own strengths to deal with the cyber challenge. Uh, globally, uh, I, I think we will see that. But it's a weakness at this point of time. Raja, the Russian president, Mr. Putin, is in New Delhi as we speak. How does India balance its ties with Russia and the United States, which between them do not have a good relationship at all? Is the relationship with Moscow non-negotiable for India? There's too much of romanticization of the Russia relationship in Delhi, as well as outside associate as Look, I think uh, the relative weight of U.S. in India's overall calculation has grown up. You mentioned the equipment uh, in uh, in the Ladakh sector. Look, I think today India-Russia relationship is really a transactional one. I mean, that India needs defense, uh, certain types of equipment the Russians still provide in the specialized nuclear domain or the S-400s or the uh, you know nuclear-powered submarines that we can uh, you know lease from them. So there is a value there. But the larger picture, today it's really India is much closer to the West uh, in terms of what it does with the US, what it does with the Europeans, what it does with Japan. Uh, so, so I think there is no, uh, it's, it's like an old relationship uh, that I say that, look, it is an old romance that's being kept alive. While both of us have found more attractive partners, Russia is much closer to China today. India, in fact, India-Russia relationship grew when Russia and China were fighting. Actually, India's relationship with the U.S. is is much larger. And India is not going to sacrifice its relationship with the Americans just to please the Russians. Nor will Russia, you know, give India a veto over what it does with with Beijing. So we are in a different global great power dynamic. Uh, And I think India says, look, we're not going to simply abandon an old partner because we have a good relationship with the U.S. But the relative weight in the relationships has fundamentally changed. But a lot of areas, for example, small-scale weapons production, they're still from 80-90%, it's come down to about 50%, but still a large amount is there. So we want to keep that relationship. Uh, India would hope at some point, Americans and the Russians would have a reasonable relationship. But till then, uh, India has to manage. I mean, that, that uh, India is not going to abandon the U.S. ties because uh, some leftists in India or some, you know, old Russia hands want it. Uh, that it's, it's not going to happen. The Russians know it as well. The Russians are deeply opposed to India-Pacific, but India is not going to uh, stop supporting it. Uh, and similarly, you know, you have Lavrov yesterday in Delhi trashing Indo-Pacific. So, so you, so be it. India does its thing. Russia does its thing. But within that, uh, what do we do together? And don't forget, I mean, for all its embrace of Russia, Russia's embrace of China, Russia's global relationships are at the weakest moment. It's fighting with the Americans. It's fighting with the Europe. Normally, you'd have thought they should have a reasonable relationship with Germans, at least. Even that doesn't exist. Or Japan. So they they have really stuck with China. 
And if you think of China, Chinese GDP today is 10 times larger than Russia's. 10 times. We're talking about China at 15 trillion and Russia at 1.5 trillion. It's really a huge gap. So Russians are not in great shape. They need India as well. And that's why this relationship goes on. Uh, within this managing uh, the old, maintaining an old relationship amidst the fundamental changes uh, that are taking place. But I'm quite still hopeful that Russia and America will build a reasonable relationship. Uh, in fact, uh, Tuesday, uh, today there is a phone call between Biden and Putin because the Biden has seen you can't simply write off Russia. And that if you want to build a coalition on China, uh, at least the neutrality of Russia is, is important. Uh, so I think we are in for big changes. And uh, within that, uh, the relationship, at least in Delhi, with the super realists that are in power today, there is no sentimental attachment to Russia. It is a transactional relationship uh, that, that will be maintained. Raj, uh, talking about new forms of cooperation and security that are coming up, could I ask you about the quadrilateral security dialogue, which most people know as the Quad? What are the implications of India's involvement in Quad, and how does it gel with its tradition of non-alignment? And some people think that India, for all practical purposes, is now a non-treaty ally of the United States. Do you agree to that? Alignment was always a red herring, more public discourse uh, rather than it was ever true of India's policy. Go back to 1962, Nehru himself was ready to go with the Americans. And in fact, Nehru and Kennedy were deeply hoping for a serious relationship, but Kennedy's death prevented it. Then Indira Gandhi signed a treaty with the Soviet Union. It was an alliance in all but name. But today, India is much stronger, much bigger. It's going to do a lot of close partnership with the, with the, with the U.S. But still, as you said, look, India is the only non-treaty member of the Quad, which means actually India sets the pace. Look, if it is only... You know, if Americans wanted to do something, Japan and Australia are already treaty partners. Why do they want India? It's because India's mass, India's size, make it critical in any successful long-term coalition. That is, it's not enough with Japan and Australia to run a new policy in Asia. You need India on your side. So they're willing to overlook a lot of India's faults uh, that you need India in the court. So when we talk about Indo-Pacific, the Americans, for the Americans, it is about putting Indo into the Pacific. And a lot of our Southeast Asians don't see it like that way. But I think having India in the equation is what is new. But it's not entirely new. If you go back to the Second World War, it was the Indian Army that fought the Japanese in Burma, uh, took surrender of the Japanese troops in Burma, in Singapore, in Jakarta, and in Hanoi. So what we see is return of India's natural weight into the regional balance of power. But for decades, we thought India is marginal in Southeast Asia. Uh, India's, uh, but today, I think the geography is beginning to come back. And this, India keeps growing. Its military capabilities will grow. And it will be an important factor in shaping the new order uh, in East Asia and more broadly the Indo-Pacific that's a wonderful note to end this conversation, Raj. It's been such a pleasure having you on Speaking of Asia. Thank you very much for participating and for your very forthright answers. Thanks very much. Wonderful being with you. The Asian Insider Podcast channel is also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and our audio app. 
That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Like us and rate us.